This episode is brought to you by Ravenheart Forge. For the sharpest knives and the toughest steel, visit www.ravenheartforge.com. What's up everybody and welcome to this episode of Blades for Days where we're going to be talking about swords and sword fighting and self-discipline and living on a boat. I'm your host Jordan and joining me today is co-creator of Wessex League, John Middleton. Hey. Hey. How you doing? Yeah, doing really well, thank you. Yourself? Love the background. Oh, I see a lot of people do. <laughs> all behind me because I work. <laughs> as well and i'm working a lot on zoom so i've just kind of got yeah a nice neutral environment that's uh that's fair enough melissa melissa does a lot of work in this office uh so i think it's i think it's a good background for her because she's sort of like in middle management so uh <laughs> <laughs> sort of uh nothing says obey me like a backdrop of uh yeah, it just kind of boosts your authority doesn't it yeah 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 so uh how have you been uh since covid happened or like well just in general since i saw you also covid i guess um yeah i haven't fenced very much and that's kind of killing me um i've just started again recently um but yeah i guess i've had a pretty good covid all, all things considered could have been a lot worse i've had yeah. where i've had a roof over my head <laughs> i've not not had oh no i think i probably did have covid actually but it was before covid was a thing <laughs> it was like in january 2020 oh wow um, i haven't had any more covid since then yeah, so, yeah. i um, what's going on yeah no really good uh i passed my driving test on tuesday um first time so happy about that um <laughs> well, i had three runs at it <laughs> so you, yeah, I was, I was, I was really pleased because Melissa and I had a, um, we had an agreement that I would not buy any more swords until I passed my driving test, and then COVID happened, and that kind of delayed everything. Um, so it was kind of swings and roundabouts, really. Hey, roundabouts, driving joke, because um, <laughs> um, the roads were quite empty during covid so i could get a lot of driving practice in but then it also meant that like i my, my test kept getting pushed back and back and back and then i knew yeah. that if i failed it this time i would have to wait months before i could rebook it yeah, that'll be a massive backlog right now yeah yeah so i'm um, i'm pretty glad that i i got that out of the way and now the the the, the leash is off um before, before you got in touch, I've, I had about 15 tabs open of like the different swords I want to get. So, so uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I mean, because for yourself, you live in London. Um, no, not anymore. Or not, oh, not? not since I, since, um, so at the start of the pandemic, I was actually due to move to Sweden. Oh, yeah. But we didn't because everything went to shit basically um and so i'm actually in essex now uh kind of near colchester um which is where i grew up um and we're living here probably probably staying here for a while it's kind of open-ended at this point so yeah right, so i wasn't okay. i haven't been in london for the pandemic at all yeah um, 
that's probably yeah. for the best, I guess, because um, I was chatting oh. to, like, I've chatted to a few people who live in London, um, yeah. and they're like, yeah, can't fight. There's no room. There's no space. Like, um, they're sort of penned in there. So, yeah, I, I felt very lucky to be outside um, <laughs> and, like, near a river and, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't imagine what it would have been like in London. No, that's um, it. It's almost like you got out, you know, like in zombie movies when you yeah. get out of quarantine before, you know. It felt like that. On the, we left the day we left was probably like the week before lockdown, but it it had that feeling of like everything was, you know, people knew the shit was hitting the fan, right? And we're there packing our bags and kind of getting out, and we might be leaving the country. Um, and also, we ran into this guy. So, so we were living on a boat in London. Um, oh, you've been there. I've been, been to you, bro. Yeah, that was. There was a guy who lives on the dock, and we were sort of debating who would be best equipped to survive COVID on the dock. And we were kind of running through everyone, and we were like, oh, you know, so and so, he's really fit. He'll be all right. And then it was like this guy, and we said, he's a prepper. I bet he's a prepper. I bet he's got a boat full of like tin food and weapons. Um, and then as we were leaving on the last day, we ran into him and we said, Oh, you know, how's, how's it going? Like, what, what do you think of all this stuff? And he was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's terrible, isn't it? And then he was like, but of course, I've known something's been coming for a while. So I've been, so I, and he'd literally been like stocking his boat up with supplies for months, yeah. like well before COVID stuff. And he was, he's a prepper. He's, he was like in his bunker. <laughs> in his but bunker that, that definitely added, that added to the kind of pre-apocalyptic feeling. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was touch and go there for a minute because like i I've, I've admitted it on this podcast uh like i laughed when uh, when people were like oh there's a pandemic coming i was like ah don't worry about that we are on an island don't even worry about it <laughs> and then it was like the ne- i think it was like the next week i was stood in front of my students going yeah we gotta close this is gonna be our last session for a little while i had so much egg on my face i was like yeah, yeah. yeah so it yeah, turns yeah. out it's pretty serious yeah well don't worry you're not the only one that feel like the whole you know uk government probably <laughs> <laughs> like probably a bigger cock up than you being like oh no it's fine we'll have sword training next week yeah yeah a little bit um, no, it was really, it was really like quite sort of surreal, I suppose, because uh, I I came to train with you guys um, in when you were in London, and yeah. I came with Helena, um, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, she said, "Oh, we'll stay with John. He lives on a boat." And for whatever reason, my my mind went immediately to just a rowing boat. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, I just sleep under a tarp. <laughs> yeah, I was like. What is he some sort of vagrant? We're all three gonna be on this boat because she didn't say houseboat or like I don't know, like yacht or anything, you know? Yeah, yeah. boat. And I was like, oh cool, I guess. Um I was like, it's I could probably just, you know, stay at a stay at a uh, a hotel. It's it's fine. She's like, no, 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 there's plenty of room on the boat. And I'm like, she's like, it's a houseboat because she could see my face. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, that was uh that was that was cool. Yeah, it's in a weird location as well, right? I mean, that was sitting under um, Canary Wharf. It's like you could be in the boat and it would be like, it's just all wood and kind of you hear the, the waves lapping against the surface and you hear the birds and stuff. And then you look up and there's like the Barclays massive glass tower and stuff. Yeah. Very weird. 
and I definitely wouldn't have wanted it to be confined in there. No, I was I was actually thinking that because I thought, Jesus, is he still in the like? Is he still in the boat? Like, how big a beard has he grown? Like, you know, <laughs> is it a case of like you know he's he's just chucking spears into the water and pulling out fish because he's just he's gone. Yeah, coming up there, you know, I could have I could have gone seal hunting with, you know, really. I've got quite a nice like wooden club that I won as a prize at fight camp one year. I, I can see myself clubbing seals to survive in the Yeah. I think you'd probably get a few people complaining. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Just wanton animal cruelty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're there clubbing seals in London, you know, on your house. It would have been empty. There would have been like yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, fair enough, I guess. Because, um, I mean, that was the thing. Like, I watched uh, I watched a video of just somebody doing, like, a bicycle circuit of London um, during the pandemic. And, you know, they went through the, the kind of the finance district and, you know, and, and it was it was like an absolute ghost town. It was like yeah. something out of out of uh, 28 days later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So who are you training with now, then? Right. Uh, I'm not training with anyone at the moment. I'm tra Well, I'm training with two people who started coming to my Tai Chi classes that I was running in the park uh, in the town I'm in. Uh, and I got them interested in swords and I'm teaching them. Um, and we're gradually going to be turning that into a proper club. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, we're just kind of looking for a venue and then we're going to kind of advertise. And because, you know, one of the things about being up here is there's no HEMA here and it kind of has to, you know, you've got to make it, um, make it happen. Um, although actually I've just recently, just today, discovered that someone else is starting a HEMA club in the local area. All right. Uh, which is great. I'm, I'm like the more the merrier. I think it's good to have different clubs even quite close together because you can kind of, you know, they might serve slightly different constituencies in terms of who likes doing what and stuff like that. And then, but then you get people coming to both and then you get meetups and, you know. Yeah. Or get endless dojo war. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it goes <laughs> a little bit Cobra Kai. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. in London, the, uh, like a lot of the clubs, there's a lot of sort of like cross-pollination there. Um, and, you know, there's almost like a, a HEMA circuit you can do. So training with like the Waterloo guys and then, you know, going and training with uh, Scholar Gladiatoria. And then there's, uh, I, I know David Rawlings is in London or was in London, so. It's, it is interesting in London because obviously everything's quite geographically spread out within yeah. London. So Scholar is quite far west, you know, so that's really good if you're west, but not very good if you're kind of east or south. Um, then there's clubs in central London, like London Historical Fencing Club. There's 1595 Club Train in London. And there's Dave Rawlings, um, London Longsword Academy, I think, still still goes by. Yeah. Um, there's <coughs> um, I think it there is a lot of cross-pollination in terms of, like, certain groups come together at Waterloo quite a lot, and certain people train between different clubs. But actually, it is also quite, there's not as much as you might think of people training in more than one club. And I think that is because each club kind of serves slightly different needs and like, you know, different interests and has a different style of how they organize, how they run a club, how they train, 
you know, so if you take um, 1595 Club, for example, um, I used to go, I used to go and train with them every now and then, um, but just, just ran out of time to do it. Um, but they've got, a, I don't know if you've ever fenced with any of them, but they've got a wonderful system um, based on Sabiolo, but really developed with a real depth of kind of movement, precision and kind of footwork. Um, absolutely amazing, great fencers, but because, but they're very committed to that method. So although they'll happily come to events and play with other people and stuff like that, they're not necessarily interested in like cross training outside of it, mm. I guess. Um, because it's quite a holistic system as well because it has like boxing in it they do unarmed stuff that's kind of based on Saviolo but also adapting stuff from 19th century um, boxing and savat and stuff like that yeah Uh, yeah so in that sense you do there are reasons people stick to a specific club yeah they love and then they do that Uh, there's also um, Tempest Fugitives of course now Jay's Jay Maxwell yeah yeah. Um, doing Bolognese stuff. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, really like quite industrious at the moment, isn't he? Cause he's like, he's sort of forming all these partnerships as well with, uh, um, with these different groups and, and selling stuff. Um, uh, yeah, well. I, I think it's brilliant that yeah. what they're bringing to the UK in terms of having, being able to buy all that stuff kind of off the shelf in the UK or not, not quite off the shelf. Cause it's not necessarily sitting there in the UK already. Some of it's like on back order, yeah. The fact that they're a UK retailer that you can go to kind of one place and get a lot of that stuff yeah. directly rather than having to deal with, you know, finding somebody on Facebook who's maybe not got the best like selling page or something. And then you're dealing with stuff going through customs and stuff like that. I think so. I, yeah, I think it's quite an amazing resource that they're building up now. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's one of those things because like I, I got um, an Aureus... Uh, longsword as a as a thank you gift to myself for learning to drive because I actually hate driving I, I didn't want to do it yeah, but I, you know kind of had to um, and it's one of those things where they've got they make beautiful swords but their website's kind of crap um, yeah. and so you're like you know what, what am I looking at here where are the prices what is this like and and it doesn't navigate all that well and so you know they're obviously you know that that that's what they're doing just to get their their merchandise out there, and they're focusing more on making the swords and the swords they make are beautiful. Oh, they're gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it's almost like cheating using an Aureus because it has the behaviour of quite a heavy sword, but it's so light. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, I've got somebody, uh, a friend of mine in my school, and he's just like he refuses to fight me if I'm using one. He's like, no, that's bullshit. That's cheating. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah um but yeah so it's nice to have that like you say in britain so that you're not having to sort of um you know well i need to go here for this and deal with this kind of thing um you know that that's that's really cool because i one of the things i was looking at was a pair of uh parrying daggers from tempest Mm -hmm. fugitives but it's like from kaviton i think it's kaviton who make them um, but I was thinking about getting a pair, uh, one for Melissa and one for myself, but I want like the, the laser uh, engraving. Uh, it? So it's like a his and hers kind of thing, you know? Uh, cute. I know. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm a soft touch. Um, well, 
the thing is this if i get something for myself i'm like oh that was a bit selfish but if i get something for both of us then i'm like well i could get away with that <laughs> yeah 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 like it's yeah. Uh, really yeah exactly you know this is more for you i didn't even want a parrying dagger it's fine so yeah um no that cross-pollination stuff is great i i, I think when it's um you know when it's when it's done well when there's kind of like that sort of uh friendliness to it because i've got a really good relationship with the academy of historical fencing who's like the other group that's kind of near us which is in um they're in newport and what's good about them is that they do like maya Johan maya and like german later german stuff um whereas i do fiore uh they do you know, if they do like one thing, I might do the sort of Italian variant or the, you know, I'll, I'll do something else that's, a, you know, that's a tad different from them. And so it's nice because I attend their classes as well. Um, I'm a member of the AHF, but they, they say, no, you're only a half member, really, you know, so. Um, we tolerate your presence. But... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I know I, I was saying to uh, Nick and Mike when I first showed up because I, I made my intentions clear. I was like, look, I want to set up my own school. I want to do this. I want to do that. Um, so I wasn't like just kind of like going there and going, oh, I'm going to say, you know, I, like I didn't want to seem duplicitous or anything. And they were like, yeah, yeah, coming along. That's great. Which was, you know, a really nice attitude to have. And um, I came in. Um, but it was quite funny because I, I told them about this for the first maybe month also because i said oh i want to be you know i want to be an instructor you know in my own right kind of thing um mike or nick would say something and then they'd look at me as though daring me to contradict it and i'm like this yeah, is yeah, saber yeah. man i don't know anything about saber like you know so yeah um so that's quite funny uh and i I've talked to them about experience i've had that experience in a couple of places before like uh yeah it's slightly uncomfortable. I always, whenever I go to any new class of any martial art, like I will always, I try and actually downplay how much experience I might have. So I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah I've done a bit of this and a bit of that. Or not, not in a deceptive way. I won't, I won't be saying like, oh no, I'm just a beginner, you know. But yeah. like, you don't, I don't want to, you don't ever want to roll in and be like yeah i've done 20 years of this and i'm a whatever i'm not but um yeah. and, and from a learning point of view actually my approach is like i will kind of empty out my cup and like take what is on offer here i'll still be critical about it and be like oh actually i don't agree with the way you're doing that but your job as a student is to be like okay i'm here to learn and accept the teaching that's being offered here if i don't like it i'll go somewhere else but like yeah you know coming in with that attitude um, yeah i um i've only had it once and it wasn't kind of it didn't really uh, call me out in front of my students because i haven't had that yet and i think if i did i don't know how i'd respond <laughs> um but i had somebody turn up and i've never known anybody to alienate so many people in such a short amount of time as as this fella so basically um uh he came along you know we do a thing where you know yeah your first class is free come along come and you know mm. see what we do and um i'm i'm very proud of my guys because they're incredibly welcoming and you know they'll they'll help people like you know oh here's this stuff is you know and, and and they talk about what we do and like the, the sort of events that we that we run and all that sort of stuff and um 
yeah, this this fella came in and uh, he started talking to uh, Ben, um, who's a friend of mine, even though he denies it. A friend of mine in the class, and he runs our website and stuff. And he said, "Oh, did you um, uh, did you make the website?" And uh, Ben went, "Oh yeah, I did actually." And he went, uh, and he said something like, "Oh, it's uh, it's really badly designed, isn't it?" Right? And Ben just went, "Okay," and turned on his heel and just walked away from him. Right? Which is you know good enough Fair. response. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, he went up to Alan, who's another one of my students. Uh, shout out to Alan because I know he listens. Um, who's like designed us these synthetic pole axes for our pole axe semester, which was it was a long time ago. He designed them, and it's only now that we can get to it because of like COVID and everything. Um, but he kept like bringing in different prototypes and going, "What about this? Is it too heavy? Is it too light?" Because um, like I said on the, the last episode when I was talking to uh, Sam Aykroyd, the problem with pole axes is make them too light and they're not a fair representation of what you would be doing, but make them too mm. heavy and they're way too yeah, dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we were kind of, you know, messing around with some different ideas. And he just sort of like barges into our conversation and he's like, I'm a structural engineer as well as a, apparently a, a website designer, right? Which he'd claimed earlier. He's like, I'm a structural engineer. I like, I can tell you how to improve on this. He's like, yeah, this isn't very good, is it? You know, you want to work on this. And, you know, Alan took it with good grace. Um, he's just kind of nodding going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the tip, person who hasn't even told me his name yet. Um, <clears throat> and then he comes up to me, fortunately at the end of the class, um you know after we were all done uh and he said oh like i know hema right and i went okay right fine um and he said yeah i also did like loads of uh like i can't remember what which martial art he said he said oh, i also do loads of this um if you want i can teach your students this that and the other right yeah and i was sort of like i stood there and i sort of nodded and i just went really quiet and anyway he 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 left um after saying see you next week i guess and i was like yeah and i got in the car and i was really quiet and melissa went are you okay and i was like never in my life would i go up to any of my martial arts instructors at any point and 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 like an offer to teach them right i would never do that i was and and the the longer it took us to get home because we were sort of stuck in traffic the, the angrier i got about it um so yeah i so so a funny thing here is like i i feel like i've been a terrible person in a martial arts class like before and and so i kind of know what it looks like uh, particularly i'm thinking when i was much younger and i was kind of first training like different martial arts and stuff and i was really into you know trying to figure out what was actually good and you know comparing different martial arts and you know obviously like ufc was kind of established then but like maybe hadn't found its way into the culture as widely as it has now um so there was that whole thing about mma being the actual like best thing and you know and i don't know all of those like dynamics going on between different martial arts and i do remember going to different classes to try them out and being I don't know if cocky is the right word, but being a bit like somebody would show me a technique and I'd be like, oh yeah, cool. But have you seen this and do this and whatever? And obviously some, the person you're training with is like, yeah, look mate, I just want to train. Yeah. You know, I don't want you bringing this bullshit in there, but like sometimes it's too polite to say it. Um, and so I feel like I learned to be 
and I, once I saw that that I was like being a bad student and a bad, yeah. and a bad training partner um I look back on that and just cringe but yeah I know what you mean um, I, was, I was young and like yeah, yeah. but I, I feel like that's a young person thing isn't it like when yeah. you first go in and like it's the whole blue belt syndrome thing where you you think oh yeah I'm the big dog's biscuit now um yeah. and it's it's funny because like uh you know where you talk about oh well in in when I did kung fu I used to do this right and I've 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 done that myself but it was quite funny because on um sunday i had a, a one-to-one brazilian jiu-jitsu class um yeah. with a guy in cardiff and that's a first of all that's a bizarre experience to go from social distancing to like it's grappling on the ground and having you know another man's mouth like this close to my own and i'm like this is weird we're definitely gonna get covid at this rate kind of thing yeah. but um yeah this, uh, so that was strange uh, and I really, because I, I was basically talking to him about Fury, and I know, like, the thing is, he's like, he's a really cool guy, and you know, he's he, he does the BJJ stuff, and he does like karate as well, I think. And uh, it's one of those things where I, I said to him, "Oh, like single leg takedown." I said it might be of interest to you, but the you know the manuscript that I study the most, uh, the single leg takedown looks almost identical you know, mm. in the in the depiction of it and the description of it as well. And he kind of went, uh-huh, anyway. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm the nerd here, <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I feel like there's something that's reasonable, though, because that's like, you're one-on-one with somebody and you're introducing something they might find interesting. You just struck out in terms of, like, you know, that because that, he could have been like, oh, wow, that's cool. I didn't know yeah. that or something. One of, I, there, so I used to train more other martial arts, um, as well as Hema and it was interesting some of the feelings in relation to other martial arts because it was when Hema was very young right and there was a bit of an aspect of Hema trying to be taken serious like Hema was quite adolescent as a whole discipline in that it was trying to be taken seriously by the grown-up martial arts and, and also trying to differentiate itself a lot from sport fencing and from SEA and from reenactment which was kind of necessary, but also it was a bit needy. You know, it was like, oh no, don't, you know, don't lump us in with those people who do that silly sword play stuff. We're real martial artists kind of thing. There was a bit of a vibe of that. Um, and I've had very satisfying experiences of showing Hema to other martial artists and them going, cool, that, oh yeah, I can see you've got a thing here. Yeah. Um, and I've also had, it's incredibly satisfying to pull off something that you only learned from HEMA in another martial arts context. So like I did a, a lock from Fiore in a, in a sparring session with somebody. And I was like, I've literally looked at a 15th century book, learned that move with training partners and everything, you know, not just on my own um, and made it work. Um, but I feel now I, because I feel much more confident in my HEMA stuff as in its own right, almost, I don't feel any particular need to be taken seriously. Do you know what I mean? By other, other martial artists. I'm really up for it. If other martial artists are interested and they go, and I, you know, a lot of time people do and they're like, Oh, that's really cool. Tell me about that. You know, yeah. um, but I'm also not really kind of concerned about it, I guess in, and also because HEMA is big enough now that 
you've got plenty of depth to play with within the the sort of Hema pond. Yeah. You know? um, it's funny that you mention that because yeah. like I I'm probably not there yet then because I like I still if I talk to another martial artist like if I talk mm -hmm. to some of the guys in my Brazilian jiu-jitsu class if I talk you know when I've done uh, Krav Maga mm -hmm. and stuff like that and that's that's really interesting because I noticed that when I was doing a throw I was using the Volta Stabile you know uh -huh. that kind of footwork um in order to do a throw I'm like I, that's pretty effective actually you know yeah, yeah. um so that was that was quite cool um but when I'm when I'm talking to them, I like because I yeah maybe you know maybe it's a personal ego thing, but I kind of feel like it, it's it's not because I know that there are a lot of people out there who put a lot of work in. So mm -hmm. to to have somebody not not belittle it, but almost be like oh you know you do uh, like you do historical martial arts, do you? Oh that's that's that that's nice, um, kind of thing like. I I would like that would feel like almost a betrayal of the people who have worked hard to make it kind of more widely recognized. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I suppose where I've come to is feeling like <laughs> there's a level on which what we're doing is fundamentally absurd, but it, it's it's an absurd activity that gives the most when pursued sincerely and when you try and do it really well. Yeah, right. Like as in you get the most out of it and it's more interesting and it's if you if you if you take it seriously, right? But but ultimately it's utterly absurd. Like we're playing with swords in the 21st century, you know. I mean, maybe no more absurd than many fields of human endeavor, but like, you know, and it has real benefits and stuff. But so so anyway, but all I'm getting at is like on some level, I feel quite happy if people are like, Oh, you play with swords, that's funny. Because I'm like, yeah, that is funny. But also, I'm pretty good at it. And if you want to, you know, if you want to play with swords, I can probably hit you in the head. Like, do you know what I mean? I, yeah. But it's fine that people don't take it too seriously. And until that point where you're actually trying to show someone that it works and that it's that there's a real te technique and that there's you know some skill involved. Yeah. Um, and and then I w want people to take it seriously because I want them to see that you know. Yeah, um, I, I had. Sorry, yeah. No, no, no. I was just going to say. I mean, that was the thing because, like, I was talking to uh, Daniel, my coach, about like Hema, mm -hmm. and he wasn't too sure about what it was and all that sort of stuff. And I said, look, what, one of the things I like if I'm grappling, and I showed him my um, my spevies. Well, they're not spevies; they're from uh, uh, Superior Fencing, but they're basically they're, they're like they're spevies, but you know, with a label switch. We all know. Yeah, exactly. It's the, you know, it's the worst kept secret in Hebrew. Um, so I was showing him those and he, he's like, wow, those are really heavy duty. And I was like, yeah, so if I'm going to do like foot traps or anything like that, yeah, and I, I need to, you know, and I'm taking hold of my opponent, mm. I, I pretty much can't use my hands as well mm. as I normally would when doing, um, you know, when like grappling on the floor, going for, you know, so if I am going for a takedown, a double leg takedown, I'm going to be using my forearms more than I am my hands. And that kind of turned him around a bit. You know, when I'm talking about the nerdy, nerdy yeah, yeah. stuff, um, you know, commas. You, you set him up with a puzzle, right? That yeah, yeah, exactly. World, and he's like, oh, yeah, okay, how do we solve this with the skill that I've got? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was, you know, that that was of more interest to him as like, essentially, like, how would you fight in armor? 
you know, how would you grapple in armor if you can't grip your opponent if you're wearing like clamshell gauntlets? And that, that's what I say to people when sometimes when people are like, oh yeah, but you can't pull off all these disarms and stuff in, in sparring or in tournament gear. And I'm like, yes, you can. It turns out like people did this in armor. You know, there's sometimes like little modifications that you might make, you know, and some of the things like in Fury, like where you're reaching between the hands, you yeah. probably aren't going to do. But then you're probably only going to do those if there's a significant gap there and even if you're not wearing any armor it depends how someone's holding the sword and all that kind of stuff um whereas a lot of the like slightly complex turning hands and you know pulling swords out you can do fine in gloves it's like the system supports it you know yeah yeah but people um... did it no, it's, a, it's cool, because you and I, when we fought last, uh, I remember you gave me a bit of a starching. I remember it differently. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm pretty sure uh, I remember walking away from that going, he beat me up a lot there. Um, and it's, it's interesting, because you're like me in that you're quite lean. And so a lot of people that I grapple with, a lot of the people who are like more comfortable with grappling, are usually quite broad. And so they're relying on that more. Um, and one of the people I was grappling with yesterday, because we were doing sort of like side control um, in, in, you know, and basically just getting getting somebody off you in, um, yeah. you know, ground fighting. And the guy who was like, the guy who was just lying down on top of me was a bit of a beast. Like he, he was a really, really big guy, very like muscular kind of thing. And so, you know, it's kind of good because when he was doing the technique, he'd just be like, get the fuck off me. And I was like, yep, all right, I'm up. <laughs> I couldn't hold on to him for love nor money. Um, but when I was doing it, like it forced me to have to like, right, I need to make sure that my hips are in the right place. I need to make sure that I'm framing correctly and I'm putting pressure on the right places and stuff like that. And that's something that you do well. Like, you know, one of the things that I find is that sometimes when I go into grapple with somebody, you know, whether they're broad or whether they're not or whatever they just start doing the kind of like wax on wax off thing and like flailing about sort of stuff um and sometimes it works because you're like well i'm gonna do that oh no he's not you know they're not doing what i think that they should do and then you know somehow it, it uh, like your your technique fails um but with you i felt that like you had a lot of control over my sword and that sort of stuff so I think there's sort of doing martial arts outside of HEMA and then bringing it in to give it that wider context really helps. Yeah. And most of the grappling that I use in HEMA is quite, um, I can apply, you know, a certain amount of like locks and throws and stuff, um, but I'm more likely to do actions on the sword or on the wrists or the hands to, you know, either attempt to disarm or attempt to control the sword whilst I strike um, because that's my preference for, how you actually use it in sword play, right? I want to use the sword. I don't want to wrestle with you. Um, but I think that there's also an underappreciated thing in grappling about um, timing and distance and how you arrive in the grapple from the fencing and how much of that dictates who wins the grapple. Um, and this is where the, the silver part of me, the George Silver part of me comes out because I've got like Fury and George Silver and Silver's pretty much like you only grapple if the other person like tries to enter on you basically he he never 
pushes a grapple. Whereas I think Fiore would be quite comfortable just smashing his way in and like, you know, grabbing something. Yeah. Um, but the, but still the same principle applies, which is that the moment. So, so what, what Silver says, right, is that if, if you're trying to force the grapple on me, and now this will depend on height difference and things like that, but you give me the first opportunity to act, right? Because you're coming in with your feet and I'm there and I'm able to just reach out with my hand and touch your hand, basically, in really simple terms. Um, and so that gives me that kind of first mover advantage. But I think that applies, you could be going forward and win that advantage because you're judging the moment, right? Where the pressure dictates that actually you can reach and touch. So just so much of it is decided, like like a lot of contact between the swords, so much of it is decided before you make contact in the, in the kind of judgment of where you're gonna land and then how much time you've got to act. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and I think that sometimes is underappreciated, but also like can be quite hard to teach. Whereas you can teach the techniques, you can teach the, right, this is how you turn the arm to produce this effect. Or, you know, these are the, the points of leverage on the sword that you, you can use to disarm it. But teaching that judgment, I think is a bit more challenging. Yeah. Um, There's that sort of hesitancy that you get from people who are like, oh, I recognize, you know, they've been there long enough to say, I recognize this situation. I'm close to my opponent. And I had it recently because one of my students, uh, Lloyd, he's a stuntman and um, he was doing a stunt and kind of injured his right shoulder. So we were fighting left handed uh, and we closed in and we were sort of you know, we were in like grappling distance. And the problem for me is that when I'm fighting with a, a single sword in my right hand, I'm used to, well, this keeps the weapon away from me and the left hand bats down his sword arm and then I can, you know, come in with the point sort of thing. But what happened was I had that like, uh, you know, because the sword's in my left hand. I'm like, chop with yeah, the... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I'm sort of like trying to remember how to like almost reverse engineer this technique in my head because I know that we're close enough to, um, uh, you know, to grapple. And I'm like, I recognize this. How do I? And then he just, you know, he just backed off and, and smacked me in the in the bonds. And um, he turns to me, he goes, did you hesitate because you didn't want to hurt my shoulder? And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's that's the reason why, because I'm infallible. <laughs> so yeah, um, it, I, I suppose it's just like closing that gap, isn't it? That, that reaction time. Decision gap, yeah. And that's where like, I suppose learning techniques and having techniques available in that moment helps. So I can't, I, I have the same problem trying to enter grappling with my right hand. It's very awkward and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and I know if I practiced that more, though, things would become more more available when you're in that moment of hesitation. Yeah. Uh, because I think, like, in that situation, I recognize the moment. I actually recognize the moment with no problem, but I don't have the tool. Yeah. Yeah. So it is It is both. Um, I think it's good, it's good for <laughs> sometimes to be reminded, though, it's good to be put in that position of being at a disadvantage in a situation where you're normally at an advantage. And something yeah. I was thinking about when we were talking about us fencing each other is we're both quite tall, 
right? You more so than me, but like we being taught, you get away with a lot being tall. Yeah. Uh, and then it's good when you fight someone taller than you and you're like, oh, this is what everyone else is dealing with when they fight me. Um, and in the same way, it's good to be re- like swapping hands. You're reminded what it's like for a beginner because what sometimes there are things that are so ingrained for you and so available that you can you can sometimes not work out why someone's struggling with it you know you're looking at them and you're like just do the thing just yeah just do the thing and it's like no they don't have the, the tool there um so it's good i think it's good to be reminded of those things as instructors yeah you know go into those moments of disadvantage and that's sometimes i would choose to fight left-handed partly because it actually loosens up your game as well it, it you're suddenly like trying to work out what to do from scratch almost yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Rather yeah, yeah. Than the movements that are really patterned in and you do this and then you do this, you're like, oh, I've got a sword and I've got my hands on it and I'm going to hit someone with it. How do I do that? Um, and, and then you, you can get quite creative with that. Yeah. Uh, but also but because it does put you at a disadvantage and it forces you to learn. And the same, you know, using a shorter sword sometimes. Fighting dagger against sword, that's one of my favourite things to do. Um, that's that's just a giggle. Yeah. Um, but like you know, you know, it's and I'm, I think I've seen you practice it as well. Um, it's in Fiore, and it's just a great thing. But it's a great thing for people to learn, not just so they can beat a sword with a dagger, but because it folds back into their sword fighting, right? So the ability to make one really decisive parry and enter off it, you can you know you can apply that really easily to, and and it's all that like trying to judge the moment and kind of you know, the other person does have an advantage, but not as big an advantage as they think, but you have to just get right on the edge of that advantage and then win a moment. And I think like that, that teaches a lot. That's it as well. And also the kind of the pressure that you're putting your opponent under, like, so once you get that parry with the dagger, you have to maintain it and like, and move in because if you don't, they're just going to pull their sword back and smack you in the head. Um, And that's that's really good because it, it stops people from sort of like going, oh, I've got this really strong block and now I'm just going to back off and let let the opportunity pass me by. Um, so that's good. I actually had this kind of moment yesterday um, because we started, like I said, we started the Polak semester and I had I had some students who were just struggling with getting the Polaks from their right side to their left side because they're like, well, there's this you know, there's this yeah. the shaft of the way, and I'm just like, and I'm like, why, why is this a, a thing? And then I'm like, oh yeah, because I've got a pole axe, I've got one uh, right here um, that I've just been using throughout lockdown. Um, so I I did a thing um, where I I would go from smaller measure to to larger measure to the largest measure I had, which was with Polaks, and then back down again. So I'd go back to dagger and then to uh, just striking. Um, and then work my way back up again. So I'm used to sort of moving the Polaks around and having it being really fluid. But they're used to like longsword, for example, or you know, arming sword or side sword, which is, well, I've got it here, and then the, you know, nothing is in the way when I move it from the right side to the left side. Um, so we just had to do this thing where I was like, oh yeah, I need to like break it down and make it even more, um, you know, make the elements even more basic, not in a kind of patronizing way, but like, 
so that they get used to going, okay, I've got this big weapon over here and I need to move it over there without like tangling up my feet or anything like that sort of stuff. And so we had to do like a 10 minute part of the session where it was literally just get the weapon from your right side to your left side um, yeah. without smacking yourself in the leg. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, that was quite an eye opener, you know? So I used to find that kind of teaching incredibly frustrating as a student because I'm like, I just want to do the move and I want to play and I want to kind of, you know, and if you'd said to me, no, we're going to spend like 15 minutes just moving the weapon from one side to the other, I'd be like, I'm bored. Teach me, teach me how to hit someone with it, you know? Um, and also because I kind of believe in apply, being able to apply things, you know, so I, I've always been skeptical of martial arts where you're just learning a movement, but you're not working it with someone or putting it into practice or hitting a pad or, you know, doing something that actually makes contact and has an application. Um, but I've come, I've come round to that stuff a bit more later on. Maybe I'm just getting old. Um, like, or maybe I've just, you know, I get to play anyway, so I, I'm not worried about it, but um, I've started, I've been practicing Tai Chi for the last couple of years. Um, and that's a lot of like incredible detail about no, no, that you, you put that foot exactly there and then you relax those muscles, which muscles, all of the muscles. Yeah. And then like, you know, it, it's very precise. And the way I've been taught it is very like, it breaks it down into really like fundamental exercises that build patterns of movement that then build back into making all your movements more like holistic and kind of the way you're using your body changes. Um, and I've actually found it really rewarding. Mm. I don't think I had the patience for it like 10 years ago, five, five years ago, even probably. Um, and when I say rewarding, it's not even necessarily that I'm pursuing it because I think it's going to make me a much better martial artist. I think it'll make me a bit of a better martial artist, but it's also just, just fascinating. And it's changed the way I walk and the way I stand and stuff like that in a really useful way. But what I've started, I've started to then see the benefit of actually breaking things down a bit more when I'm teaching HEMA, not so much because again, it's who are you serving? Right, what's your consistency? And in HEMA, there's a level of people want to come and play with the swords and they want to hit each other with the swords and you've got to give them that, right? And, yeah. Um, so not slowing it down so much, but but isolating some of those parts of the movement and not necessarily even drilling them like over and over again every week forever, but just to, to get someone the concept. So if it's moving the sword in, re in relation to their centre you know, doing an exercise that keeps the sword on the centre as they turn or and as they go up and down in a cut, just so that they have, like, conceptually that relationship, but not in the sense of we have to keep coming back to this exercise, but, like, equipping them with an analytical piece that they can use when they're learning other techniques yeah. and trying to troubleshoot things. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Because I actually, and you know, I tell my students about this all the time, it's... One of the things that I do as part of my regular personal training is I'll go at the back, I'll, I'll put an audiobook on, um, and I've got a fairly heavy uh, Heron Armory, so a completely, un, like a completely inappropriate for any HEMA sort of stuff. I've used it maybe three times um, in, a, in a HEMA context because it's just, it's, it's a beast of a thing. 
Um, and so I'll just move that quite slowly in the most basic cut over and over again, because I don't want to lose that. So whatever sort of other elements people want to add to their fencing. So everybody's about the Meister how they're like, no, nah, I don't want to do, I don't want to do just basic cuts. I want to come in with the shield how and, a, you know, and the, all of this sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, that cool and everything. But if you can't, it, it's like if you went into any striking martial art and didn't, you, you know, didn't learn how to do a jab, um, you, you know, you, you're going to fall apart pretty quickly. It's like, yeah, I can, you know, I can throw all this other stuff, but if, if my opponent doesn't close me, if, if all my opponent's going to do is just keep jabbing me in the face and I'm just, I, I don't know how to deal with it, um, then I'm finished. So like that's that's you know i do my warm-up and then the first thing i do is just basic cuts uh and sometimes it's you know it's like oh this is boring but i know then when i come across somebody um you know and, and i just cut straight into them kind of thing i'm like well that paid off then didn't it <laughs> yeah so also, I feel like there's a satisfaction that comes just from the movement when it's really well developed you know even though it can get boring if you're doing it over and over and over again but I will, I've got all those movements in my body, right? And I'll pick up a sword and just start playing with it just because I enjoy the feeling of moving through. And it usually is really simple stuff, but but there's a, a satisfaction to how clean the movement is, how joined up it feels with the rest of your body, what the, the, the swish sound you get when the sword cuts through, you know? Um, and I think like, yeah, taking pleasure in that is quite, quite instinctive for me um and i think that's what partly what keeps me training actually i'm not very good at motivating myself by being like you must do ten thousand cuts so that you can win the competition or something i yeah. have to i have to be like relishing the process somehow um, yeah and it, like teaching yourself to enjoy certain things is like that that's like that's intriguing as well because i've had like i i love a good ass kicking as in like you know when i when i get absolutely starched obviously it has to be you know and I, I, this this might sound maybe like a little bit um effete or whatever but like if it's a worthy opponent if it's somebody like i'm like yeah you you know you're very good you train a lot you've you know um all this sort of stuff if they give me an absolute beating i love that because i'm like cool that's going to teach me a lot more about why I need to do like this and not get lazy with certain parries and, uh, and, and, you know, take the opportunity to uh, strike when there is an opening and all this sort of stuff. If it's somebody who I really shouldn't be losing to, then that can be a little bit frustrating, but teaching yourself to like, like the ass kicking and like the, you know, like the feeling of having sore muscles after having trained so much and, and that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's great because then it empowers you to do it again. And, one of the things that I said to my guys when we came back from lockdown is like a lot of you are going to be hurting by the end of the, the first thing that we do. Cause we just went up the woods. It was like, Oh, we can meet up outside. Cool. We're, you know, we're you know, sort of call the banners sort of thing, you know, and um, we went up to the woods and we fought like, I gave him a quick uh, lesson, uh, side sword stuff, uh, maybe an hour and a half. And then for about an hour, two hours, maybe, probably longer actually because it was kind of dark when we were leaving um so it was probably closer to like i don't know yeah three or four hours anyway i said you guys are going to be sore by the end of this but if like if you just keep 
going not to the point where it's dangerous obviously but you know don't get out of breath and go okay i'm gonna quit now you know get out of breath and then give yourself like an extra minute go okay like five more exchanges or we're just going to do this because like the more you do that the more you're going to get out of it you know the next day you're going to feel that sort of like yeah i pushed myself uh to the limit sort of thing and it's a good feeling to to have you know um so i think i think that and yeah taking pleasure in the movement and because i did tai chi when i was when i was younger um Ah. yeah I, i did it as well and it's I've found that it's a very helpful thing for me because, you know, when I'm teaching people, I'm like, okay, slow it down. And they don't want to hear that. You know, they don't want to hear slow it down, but it's like, you know, if there are three stages, you got to like a parry B, you know, step offline, C, you know, strike in whatever. You don't want to miss a, because yeah. that that's, you know, you're going to get cut down kind of thing. And so like, I'll, I'll, make them slow it down again it's the whole slow is smooth smooth is fast sort of thing get that structure right and then everything else um falls it's, into place it's so breaking through the sense of um because people feel like a good cut is a fast cut right and there's a sense of performance that oh, if i'm doing a slow cut i'm doing a bad cut you know or that's like or i'm being bumped back to beginner level somehow or something um and i think training people out of that almost like anxiety about doing doing well being you know good at the thing help which by telling people to slow down you're partly doing it and there is that frustration and it's partly frustration just because people want to swing, swing swords but it's also frustration because they're a bit like oh but i know that's not really what i'm trying to do you know a, a cut is fast yeah um, and so they feel they're doing a bad cut but if you can teach them that that's not they're not doing a bad cut and they're not you know that this is part of learning like that actually echoes out into other things i think um, yeah i i'm interested in um to my one, one thing i've got from doing the tai chi is he makes it sound really difficult my, my instructor makes it sound really difficult um and I, i've always been a bit as a when i'm coaching people I want to make things sound easy and I want to make people feel and that, but there's a, a subtle distinction between making it sound making it seem like you can't do it right and making it seem like it's really difficult you can do it if you do the work right? yeah and rather than trying to make every, and and what what I've appreciated about that is it sort of makes it more rewarding as you pursue it that if you're going oh my god this is really difficult but if I really work hard at it I can I can make some progress um, and I haven't quite figured out how I, how that sits with me as an instructor partly because I I haven't taught that much I guess we did so I'm, I'm starting this new club where I'm doing more it's going to be involved me teaching more so whereas where I was training at New Cross there was a lot of like we're all just fencing each other and a bit of like giving each other bits of coaching but it's less like teaching whereas I'm kind of starting from scratch with this this new club but basically, I want people to feel that it's a challenge, mm. okay? and that that sense of difficulty brings reward. Um, and with that is the sense of discipline, which I used to feel like was kind of a dirty word, like I because I hated the kind of like like rigid, like uptight kind of you have to be disciplined kind of. 
I just associate that with like authority and punishment and you know rather than that internal discipline of like no I'm, I'm going to choose to kind of keep doing this thing over and over again until I get good at it um lost my train of thought there <laughs> uh, we were talking about teaching and difficulty yeah, and... yeah. um and I'm like what you find fun in it and and I think yeah it can be fun like ah oh, this is just really cool and it can be fun like oh my god this is this is gonna be really hard like and to get good at this is gonna require quite a lot from me you know yeah um and I still feel you know obviously I like we're all young in HEMA if not by age then by the age of the discipline so like yeah. we probably most people have still got a really long way to go and and you know it's like like in the time I've been doing HEMA, HEMA's grown massively and got the general standard has just got much, much better. So you find, and, and the people who are coming in now are usually learning much quicker because the infrastructure's there and the tools are there and the uh, there's more instruction available. There's more stuff on YouTube, you know, whatever. There's more people to fight, full stop. Um, but and, and so there's sometimes a problem where we we get into being instructors too young as in in our in our journey and then like we've still got masses to learn and we have to keep learning it whilst we're trying to teach other people and you know um i think it's a real it's really challenging yeah um no i agree with you and part of the thing you know because like discipline i was the same way like you know when i was when i was a teenager i was like nah you know um sort of like yeah down with the machine kind of thing like and, and all of that sort of stuff but like discipline for me is like when motivation fails you and especially during lockdown motivation failed a lot of people because it's like well there's tomorrow i'm literally doing you know i'm not doing anything today um so the people who are like i want to get out like i, I want to get outside and just do like 100 cuts or whatever they mm -hmm. they would go well i can do it tomorrow because i've got nothing going on and so their motivation just kind of uh you know petered out and i saw this a lot on like a lot of facebook pages um there was yeah there were a lot of people who was like i just i, I can't i can't do it i can't bring myself to do it and there were days where i felt like that and yet i would still go out the back uh, at the back of my house and I would still do uh, cutting drills or you know um, you know I'd be there with the kettlebell or with the with the medicine ball and then Melissa would come out with me unfortunately I've got somebody with whom I can spar so Melissa and I would have like a sparring match or something if she wasn't tired from work because she, she was actually doing her grown-up job throughout throughout lockdown and I was just kind of bumming around the house and being a bit of a leech <laughs> but <laughs> um but it wasn't like motivation that kept me going outside. It was it was that discipline of like, right, it's three o'clock. It's time for me to go and train. And I've gotten into that habit. And mm. part of that was because, you know, as you say, like with with uh, instructors becoming instructors so young, the thing for me is I was like, well, when we come out of lockdown, I owe it to my students not to be rusty, not to be right. like, you know, like, um, yeah, like not to, not to be rusty, essentially. And so the, all of the studying that I did and all the preparation I did for the new semesters and all the training that I did was more for them. And that was so, what imposed self-discipline. So there's a sense in which that is motivation, though. It's not the motivation of 
I really feel like training today, but it's yeah. like the motivation. Because I, I think one one issue I have with the, the kind of concept of discipline sometimes, and I, I've got to say my discipline's been crap through lockdown, but partly because I haven't had anyone's fence and I haven't, you know, uh, not sure what's going to happen and where I'm going to be living and all those kind of things. But yeah, um, the idea of discipline can get a bit metaphysical and a bit like, where does that actually come from? You know, and, and a bit like hard to get to grips with somehow if you just say you need to be disciplined that becomes some just kind of internal battle that people have to fight with themselves which actually often is counterproductive you know and like so i i think a lot about like well what works for me what make what what are the conditions under which i will train uh, and can i get access to those conditions so for example i went to a boxing class last week um and i'd a few weeks I've been feeling like oh, I'm not really doing enough exercise I'm not really I need to be doing some some training and I, I've got I'm in a whatsapp group with some of my mates and they're all running and they're posting their runs and they're all people who are really into quantifying and they love seeing their time go down and you know and I just couldn't give a shit I can't I don't care I don't care about the you know that it doesn't do anything for me um, but I was starting to question myself and go you know oh where is my discipline why aren't I going out and running why am I so bad at exercise? And I went to the boxing class, just smashed, smashed it for like an hour, completely like caned it. I was a wreck afterwards, but I was walking home and I was like, oh yeah, that's what works for me. Do you know what I mean? That's, yeah. That is what makes, it's not that I'm fundamentally bad at doing exercise or doing training. It's that there are certain conditions that actually make me do it. And I need to set myself up for those conditions. Yeah. Um, and I think it's an important thing for people to recognize as well, because it's, it's different for different people. And some people, some people do love doing the solo drill over and over for hours and hours. Some people know they need to do it and they'll push themselves to do it once in a while. And they really need to be in there and sparring and, you know, um, and I think it's just important for people to recognize that, that those differences and then what works for them. Cause otherwise you can get caught in this motivational trap or discipline trap or whatever of kind of, trying to force something that doesn't work for you yeah yeah, yeah. um and there are also to push through you have to you have to push through sometimes but like oh yeah yeah, yeah definitely i don't like i had um you know i've had those those days um and the funny thing is that i had like so when when lockdown first started um you know it was like cool i'm not going to be running the academy you know because I, I run it three nights a week that's like that's that's half my week is planned around that you know what i mean um i was like i'm not going to be running the academy i'm not going to be sparring uh i sort of like kind of been let go from uh my job as well and all this sort of stuff and i was like and I, uh, you know uh, melissa was sat where i am right now in the office and i was just yeah. I, I was just slumped at the top of the stairs, right? Just kind of like, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was just eating crisps from the packet, like, you know, and, and the crisp packets on my on my chest. And she's like, and she's doing everything in her power to like motivate me and to, to, um, and to like cheer me up and stuff. And I said, look, just give me today to feel sorry for myself. And I swear to you tomorrow, I will be fine, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I gave myself the day and I just slugged around the house, you know. Um, 
like somebody knocked on the door to deliver a, a, a package and I was there just in my pajama bottoms and my open robe and I'm like yeah man just give it just give it to me like you know I just started talking to him he's like yeah I don't want to know you loser and and uh and then the next day I got out of bed uh like I gave myself like I didn't have to because I had nothing going on but I gave myself a a time I was going to wake up I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make sure I go for a walk in the morning, just taking the fresh air, grab a coffee. Um, and like I, I gave myself that time. And I think that for some people, because they, you know, because they try to keep at it, like when they really don't want to be, they don't give themselves that time to just go, you know what, I'm just going to be a slug for the day, but then I'm really going to go for it. Um, and like, you know, it's important not to deceive yourself when you do that. Go, I'll be the slug for today and then I'm going to go for it. And then the day rolls on. You're like, ah, just one more day and that's fine. Um, and I know that there are darker sides to that sort of like discipline stuff because I was talking to a friend of mine, a student of mine, George Jennings. And um, um, he's, I've had him on the podcast and he's a doctor, his PhD is in um, uh, martial arts studies. And huh. Some of the stuff that we were talking about is like the the you know the kind of like the the light side and the dark side of discipline um because you have those like some martial arts schools where it's basically a cult and you'll have somebody be you know uh yes sensei and all this sort of stuff and there was one person who was talking about discipline and he's he's like you know the discipline of the warrior and all this sort of stuff and for me i said it's like it's funny because i come from a, a, a fairly military family like you know um the, the term warrior for me is specifically reserved for anybody who's actually experienced war, right? If you haven't, if you haven't been to war, if you haven't been trained to go to war, then you're not really a warrior. You can call yourself whatever you want, a swordsman, a fencer, a martial artist, uh, you know, whatever. But a warrior is like, for me, it's like, you're not though. Um, yeah. And there was this person- of that kind of thing, I, I think, you know, and that's where, where I'm saying, you know, like, what we do is absurd in terms of playing with swords i think there is a thing of having to recognize it it does connect to real violence but also it's not you know we are not warriors <laughs> like none of us is you know just by virtue of like practicing a sword art yeah and and that's yeah. what we were discussing is this one guy who's like he's released a book and i think it's called way of the warrior because the, the a lot of motivational books like that but yeah. he, I think, is a martial artist himself. Um, don't quote me on that. And like, I, I can't remember his name. It was Jeff something. And um, he was like, you know, you have to be, you have to get up at 7 a.m., make your bed, you know, uh, like, and he's talking about your diet and how you have to control your diet and all that sort of stuff. And he, he says, if I have a student and they have bad breath, I tell them and all that sort of stuff. And like, you know, and, and if they're having like, relationship problems i tell them how to fix it and it's like whoa that's not your place like so that that sense of self-discipline certainly right so for me it's like it's usually at this time i'm going to train uh, and i'll try and plan out my day with some sort of loose structure um i say i plan out my day melissa helps with that because my memory sucks and yeah but um you know the, the, yeah that's the darker side that that's the limit for me is like where it kind of goes into that sort of culty behavior and um and i mean certainly if if i found out that one of my students had threatened somebody with a sword and you know not only had they like they, they've you know they've embarrassed themselves or they've you know they've um 
by extension, they've kind of embarrassed myself and the other students of the school because they, they are representing us in that situation as well. I would be livid, but in, in any other regard, I'm not going to tell somebody how to run their life. That's not my place. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, I think that's where it kind of goes too far. But everything else, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, there's a weird, I think, there's a weird thing that happens in lots of kind of educational contexts, like which could be teaching martial arts, could be going to school, where people essentially, and I would hate this is getting less these days, but, you know, people reproduce the sadistic stuff that was done to them as, as a way of sort of justifying that they had to suffer through it. You know, so for example, so saying like, you need to, you know, I hit my students with a stick when they get their technique wrong or whatever, because, you know, that was the way I was taught and it's made me really good. And it's like, well, you could produce loads of people who are really good and they were not hit with a stick as counterexamples, right? But there's a level of that person is needing to justify the shitty thing that happened to them. So they they kind of build it into this, like, concept of discipline that takes on an almost kind of mystical significance or whatever. And it's the same thing, you know, it's reproduced in in the schools i would say as well in kind of knee-jerk authoritarianism and like rules for no reason and you know all those sort of like you know a kid asking why and somebody saying because that's the rule and it's like well so you mean for no reason <laughs> yeah oh you don't know either oh okay <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. i think it's a lot like that in in those kind of martial arts cultures as well you know? yeah yeah and i you know that that's the it's the same with like hazing um because like one of the um uh, a talk that i went to and it was to do with martial arts culture actually and like developing martial arts culture and um one of the things that was discussed was hazing and like i'm not huge into rugby i never have been like my my family my family was and like growing up they watch a rugby match and i'm sort of like sat there i don't give a shit so but i like I kind of wanted to fit in with my family. So I'm like, whoa, yeah, go the, go those guys, like score a goal unit. That's, that's the way, you know, I don't know what's going on, but um, yeah. So listening to the kind of stuff that people kind of talked about confidentially about what they'd experienced in, in hazing. And it's that, you know, like with the using it as an excuse for discipline, this was used as an excuse for like developing a sense of fraternity uh, and, and camaraderie and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, no, you're just some, as you said, something shitty's happened to you and you're kind of, you know, you're passing it on because it's like, well, now it's my turn, you know? Um, and yeah, I, like, I think that we're fortunate in HEMA in that that hasn't, like, that's not common as far as I'm aware um yeah. you know I, I yeah that's largely my experience as well yeah. yeah yeah and i've been in a lot of different martial arts classes over the years in different different martial arts which is just an amazing education in a like reading the room and just gauging an environment and b then also who do you believe and why and how seriously do you take people's claims about the thing that they're doing i feel like I've sort of learned a lot about the nature of truth by going to different martial arts classes and kind of observing people. But it's got to the point now where, you know, you can go and 
I'm going to a class and quite quickly just be like, oh no, this this sucks, you know, yeah. for for you know because it's really macho or because you know there's a weird clique around the top students or you know those kind of things. Um, and and but why I see very little of that in Hema. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny because like there's almost you know rather than you know and I've, I've experienced that as well where i go up to the instructor and the guy won't even look me in the eye when i'm paying him you know uh it's like oh you got to earn that kind of thing and i'm like all right whatever man um but it's there's almost like a reversal in hema sometimes at least you know from my experiences within um uh within my own group where more of a fuss is made over newer students mm. um and it might be because within, like, in the academy, I I kept very close tabs on my guys um, during lockdown. We had movie night every Wednesday. We had like D and D nights um, and, and 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 stuff. So I saw these guys like maybe some of them like three four times a week, you know, uh, through Zoom, obviously. Um, but so when new people come in, I'm like, oh, cool! I can bore you with my stories, and you haven't heard them like five times. So. Yeah, um, but I mean, so because you're heavily involved, or we're heavily involved with uh, Wessex League and and kind of organising yeah. that. So I mean, stuff like that will also then influence how how clubs behave, which is interesting, right? That that is interesting. Yeah, I, particularly the the feedback of because I'm concerned about that sometimes of like how tournament culture then shapes what people are training towards right and I, I imagine you might feel this way as well that you know if if there's just one game in town in terms of what the a longsword tournament looks like and then what people therefore are optimizing their fencing towards you can lose a lot of interesting stuff you know yeah um, but yeah I, I so I was um one of the kind of founding group who set up the Wessex League um and i've we the kind of founding committee stepped back um in the last year and and have kind of passed it on for for other people to run um but i think i personally i'm really proud of what it's achieved i think it's been one, one of the things that kind of fed into it was we were going we're going to other tournaments abroad and stuff like that and going, okay, this is really cool. Can we do this in Britain? But also just going, well, there's all these clubs, right? But they don't meet each other. They don't fight each other. And I, I used to go to fight camp every year. Well, I have been to fight camp every year, apart from when it's been canceled. Um, and I just loved it. Cause I was like, there's all these different people with different styles and you can just kind of exchange with people and learn from people. And I was not even so much the tournament, but just like the free sparring kind of, you know that's actually my that's the arena that i enjoy the most more so than a kind of high pressure pyramid tournament um but just having more opportunities for people to meet and fence and that it's been really visible how much it's the level just went up and up like within each year the level went up so from tournament one to tournament four of the first year people got better <laughs> And when you can see that over a few months, you're like, wow. And then um, each year on year, the quality got better as well. So it's obviously doing something quite significant in terms of pushing people to develop their, their fencing, I think. Yeah. Um, 
and giving people opportunities to fence. Um, I also I just think tournaments are great. They they kind of create drama and they create stories, right? As like that moment that you know you saw those two people fight in the final and they really brought out the absolute best in each other and it was you know just just gorgeous fencing. All that time like somebody gave up a point and lost the match and you know did it honorably and kind of went on their way and people clapped and like and and every, you know all sorts of other things it just introduced a kind of note of drama that i think is quite quite necessary and quite enjoyable and quite kind of inspiring um but you you were asking about you were talking about kind of how that feeds back into club culture or something like that and i think that's an interesting. I've I've felt really lucky that we've we've had such an amazing feeling at the Wessex events. It, it feels like to me, it feels like there's really like strong group sense, and you want that to be consistent, but you also don't want it to be exclusive. So you don't want it to be cliquey. You want new people to be able to come and get absorbed into that atmosphere. Um, people have competed like very intensely, but with very good spirit yeah. most of the time which really, I think is really important. You know, I, I don't want to go to competitions where people are, you know, I don't know, just uh, not friendly, you know, not like, I don't, I don't think how friendly you are outside the ring has any impact on like, it doesn't mean you're not an intense competitor, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, I've been really pleased with the, what the cultures that's grown up around it has been. I think yeah um, what, were you, what were you thinking of when you it was mainly that it was that sort of those interactions because you know you were talking about fight camp and um in wessex league as well i've made some really good friends um and just people people that i can sort of almost use as sounding boards or you know canaries down the mine uh, <laughs> when I'm thinking about the the direction of you know my school and what I you know and, yeah. and what I and, and what I want from it and what people want from it, um, and because I've been to like I've been to some very you know intensive um, martial arts classes uh, when I was going to Krav Maga, it was right you're going to do eight minutes of 30 seconds jump squats, 30 seconds medicine ball slams. And then when you've done that eight minutes, you're going to fight somebody for two minutes um, right. so that you get used to fighting while exhausted and all this sort of stuff. And it was really, really intensive stuff. And I'm like, is that something that people want? And for, for some, the answer is yes. Uh, but for others, it's like, well, no, I'm more, you know, I'm here for you know the, the social aspect of it i'm here for you know whatever other aspect uh, that comes from it um and i find that sort of striking a balance between the two is really nice um yeah. sort of having that you know having that look you can choose your own level of involvement kind of thing um because for some people they will you know they will give you their absolute all and it's that's great. Uh, you know, I, I was saying uh, to Helena, because I actually had her on the podcast at one point, I was like, in, in many ways, she's the most dedicated humorist I know, because, 
she keeps going even though she's like ah shit i've dislocated my shoulder and you know this has happened or that has happened and i'm like you know for a lot of people they'll be like yeah i can i can like knock out 100 push-ups and carry on fighting but that's not their all and they're not giving you their all but for that person who's like yeah i can give you one push-up and i can maybe fight for five minutes and that is my absolute maximum i would take that every time you know yeah um but yeah in terms of like talking to other groups it's great because it does give you that it gives you that insight into not just your little corner of the of the hema world but like that larger real world sort of um scope which is and we kind of want that to happen in the real world as well and like not just on the internet you know and yeah 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 well i found because that's the thing i find with the internet as well that there are people who my like my my rule is i will not say anything on the internet that i wouldn't be willing to say to somebody if they were sat across the table from me right um and uh i don't like just because you know you never know i'm like i might meet this person in in real life and i don't think people have that concept because they feel that they have that kind of anonymity but i i had uh, somebody come to um uh my class yesterday uh and she was like yeah i uh you know i asked how did you find out about the academy and she said I've been following your YouTube channel for like a year and a half. Didn't realize that you're around the corner. Um, and so I was like, oh, cool. Uh, you know, uh, and that's, that's fantastic. You know, that kind of thing is great. But I didn't know that that person was there. So if I'm like, oh, there's some rando on the internet, you know, like I can say whatever I want or, or be as disrespectful as, as, as whatever. Um, it, it's, you know, it's going to bite you in the ass, definitely. Uh, and I said to, because uh, Fran and I talk a lot about the fact that we, because we've both got TikTok accounts, hers is vastly more successful than my own because I hate TikTok. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the people on there, if I'm honest, but um, she's, you know, she's really good at that. But like now and again, she just wants to, I, I think, let off some steam. And, you know, we were chatting about that sort of stuff. And um, we were talking about maybe doing like some... Um, uh some some work together with some other hema tiktokers uh who are on there and i said cool whatever we do can we just make sure that we keep it as respectful as possible um even even in the face of being disrespected by you know uh by people most of the time it's not humorists but then now and again it is um and i i think to myself would you say that to me if we were stood eye to eye I kind of feel like the answer's probably no. Yeah, probably. Particularly because it's probably their eyes to like your chest. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I, so, yeah, I mean, the internet's a whole weird thing unto itself, isn't it? But I think, no, it's gone. Absolutely gone. Don't know what I was going to (laughs) say. That's good, man. That's that's great podcast content. (laughs) Yeah. You'll just have like a minute of me staring off into space. That's yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll edit that. I'll edit that sort of that time lapse down a little bit. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think what I was thinking of actually was because um, I'm not actually on the internet very much. I don't have much of a like public profile, if you like. Um, although I do follow all the Facebook stuff. But one one thing I actually found kind of challenging about Wessex was like. Being involved in something that's quite visible and then 
obviously like you're never going to please everyone there's frustrations that come out understandably from you know either organizational fuck-ups or you know just things not going right or you know it not being what people want or um but i'm quite surprised sometimes by some of the comments that get direct like you know i there was a comment i saw at one stage about some refereeing being biased or something and i just i was like i don't know what motivates you to make this this comment you know i mean it just it just really it always surprises me um because it didn't seem connected to anything that i could actually that i've actually experienced when dealing with people in person um yeah yeah and i mean i i i saw something i think i mentioned it maybe i mentioned it last on the last episode i don't know but that that behavior again it's like i think we've all been there where you know you've you've thrust someone dead center in the mask and you know that they've got nothing on you and you back away and the judges are like well i didn't see it i don't know what like yeah, yeah. like and you're like oh come on man like yeah um I, but that that becomes you know it, it it's one of those things where you might find it frustrating in the moment but then to sort of take that home with you um because i i remember like joking with um some of my some of my students about like i'm still bitter about like this certain thing that happened and it was um i was fighting against uh, pedro san miguel and uh he goes for a thrust i displaced it i gripped uh the cross guard of his sword and i got my point online with his face um and he was given the points uh and at the time i was like come on matt you know i know he's your boy and everything but okay it was matt yeah i was about to say was i the judge here jordan because you can just tell me you didn't have to invite me on a podcast just to, like, <laughs> you know. yeah no this <laughs> is this, yeah i'm trapping you that's what this is um and i was like and you know i would joke about the bias of it and everything but the the thing is like yeah i've watched the recording back it's so fast yeah, and yeah. he was like an inch from my face and pedro's thrusts are fucking lightning you know what i mean so his sword was an inch from my face when i displaced it so if i had been in matt's place um i would have i would have said yeah that that made contact i mean you know pedro said no i didn't get him but like it's cool i'm not bitter about it it's definitely <laughs> it's fine See, i think one of the things that i try to get across to people when I'm like, because one of the things we've aspired to with Wessex is having like a higher level of refereeing and trying to develop and like get people to practice that and kind of because it does give a structure to where people take, feel like their fencing are taken seriously, you know, and that they have a, an honest chance of kind of their fencing being rewarded, right? But despite that, it's really hard it's really hard to get it right and and i actually i want people when they're practicing and doing refereeing to understand that they are going to get it wrong a lot of the time and that actually that's the less important part of their job the more important part of their job is to start and stop the action and make sure everyone's safe and then give a like an honest account of what happened 
yeah. right, from that perspective. And that's and we have this thing in Wessex where we, you know, we consult fencers. Um, and you can consult, you can have two judges and two fencers and get four different descriptions of what's happened, like quite different, you know. Yeah. Um, and I kind of just accept that and think that's that's fine. And I also am not, it's really frustrating when that great action you did doesn't get rewarded, but like you just have to know you did it, you know. Yeah. The whether a ref said you did it or not actually doesn't make any difference whether you did pull it off. Also, I'm a bit like, and this, you know, it's not to devalue it, but I'm a bit like, it doesn't matter who won the fencing on any given day, like according to the points. Like tomorrow, someone else is going to win the competition, you know, or like, or or you tomorrow you might get hit by a bus, you know what I mean? And no, nobody's going to be like, you know, I like. I think what I'm trying to say is, I don't care if we have successfully like objectively identified the winner or not I, yeah. I kind of don't care i care if we've had a um if people have been able to fence and feel like their fencing is taken seriously if people feel like on balance you know they are rewarded for doing good fencing which i think when you actually look at results from competitions people are generally it's not like it's just rolling some dice and then you yeah know, it's like you you get the same people winning over and over again, which suggests there's a measure of skill there that's being rewarded, you know. Um, what was my point? Um, I don't care. I oh, know. So the other thing is, from the point of view of referees, right, we're trying to make people better referees. And that's an end in itself because that makes people better fencers as well. Mm. Um, it gives people a capacity to like look at fencing and understand what's happening. Um, and so, so it's not just about getting the most objective possible result. It's about how can this set of people enhance their kind of capacities to, to understand fencing action. Um, does that make sense? So, yeah. you know, there's, there's like a thing about which I think, you know, is mostly a joke, but about electrification in HEMA. And I think very few people actually have an appetite for it. But some people really do, because they're like, well, it will give us more objective results. And I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. I absolutely don't care. Because what you're losing then is, actually, there's a value to having people trying to interpret this stuff. And it, all, all of HEMA is like, requires a consensus about what's happening, because we're not actually going to carve each other carve each other up with sharp swords right so there's a almost like every, every bit of HEMA is is a collaborative like it's, it's a LARP isn't it to some extent like you're you're trying to hit each other there's an objective test of skill going on in you know whether you're able to touch the other person with the sword or not but that doesn't tell you whether it was a good cut or not um, and if it was a good cut would it have done damage? And if it had done damage, well, maybe we don't care anyway, because actually I'm trying to reproduce a particular historical system, you know? Yeah. So from that point of view, I don't I don't see any great value in establishing this like really great objective scoring apparatus, right? I'm, if the nature of the activity is that you've got a group of people trying to work out what is good fencing, you know, then it's okay that that's fallible because it always will be. Um, but that's also the game we're playing, <laughs> if you like. Yeah. 
that's what we're actually setting out to do. Um, I think, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and it sort of folds into something that I've said before about training for training's sake and not training for tournaments because, you know, tournaments are as much of a tool to figure out where you have weaknesses in your fencing as yeah. you know anything else so the result you know the purpose of going to tournaments for me has always been to test certain things that i do and their validity and their you know how effective they are um it's you know it's not been to like you know if i come away with medals great that's that's always that you know it's always rewarding but i actually find that that's sometimes the worst thing that can happen for me because then like i start to relax you know i'm like oh okay so i am doing everything right and that's the best and then the next time i'll like i'll go somewhere and i'll just absolutely get tuned up by somebody and i'm like mm, okay maybe maybe i do need to work on x y and z you know and so for me yeah loss is sometimes better and i found that like there was there have been a few occasions where i've i've fought somebody who's clearly fighting to get the points you know and it's quite for them i imagine it's quite a binary experience of i landed the point i'm the greatest swordsman that ever lived versus i didn't land the point you know at all that sort of stuff i i think the thing is you, you can't object to those people because they're doing you a favor in that they're giving you some like random bullshit that you have to deal with and yeah you, you know i mean it's another test of your fencing it means you might not be able to pull off the like the nice technique that you you want to land because it's not applicable to somebody who's not taking threat seriously or something like that yeah um but it kind of forces you to to come up with something adaptive and yeah um, I mean, it's like when you fight somebody who's completely new, you know, they'll come in with something, some absolute bloody nonsense and it'll work. And you're like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, but don't like, you know, don't, don't, you overreach there. You went up on one leg, you know, you lunged holding the pommel of the sword and like. It's, it's weird dynamic as an instructor, isn't it? Because you want to correct those things, but you also don't want to do it in a way where you're like, Oh, you didn't really hit me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't, you can't get out of it that way. You have to just be like, you know, that was cool. But, yeah. but here's what might happen if you try that. You know, yeah. we, we do try and fix these these foundations because this is not going to work consistently for you. Um, yeah, and um, one of the I maybe competitions differently to you, I think, because I I'm actually not very good at seeing it as just a. I don't stick to consistent technique. I do kind of go, how can I win this fight? And I don't, I don't usually take that to the level of, I think like gaming the rules is a concept that can be overstated, particularly with like quite simple rules. Like, like one of the things I like about the Wessex rules we've got is they don't get in the way too much. That it's like hit, you know, don't get hit. If you both, there are ways of kind of like doubling and you'll get, more points but at quite a low rate and usually it's not a very efficient thing there are things you can do which you probably wouldn't choose to do if the swords were sharp but there will be in any competition but in general the rule set's quite simple but in those competitions i i am more interested in seeing how how can i win this 
against this opponent in front of me and that's the kind of test i see it as rather than can i pull off particular techniques or stuff like that but that's why i'm a really big believer in in there being lots of opportunities to fight outside of tournaments you know it shouldn't that shouldn't be the only opportunity for people to test their fencing right you should fight other people you should just spar people from other clubs like as much as you can yeah um i'd really like to see at tournament events we did one year at wessex we did a kind of weird king of the hill sword and buckler thing where people just cycled in and out uh, and it was open to everyone and it was like not the main tournament but it was an opportunity for people to get lots of fights at the tournament event that was structured and refereed but not uh as pressured as going through the elimination tree or whatever you know so that gives people more space to be a bit more playful and a bit more you know experimental um yeah yeah i i agree with um training with other groups i you know i like traveling to well as you know you know i came up and, and trained with yeah. you guys um and uh i like sort of meeting up with uh, yeah just different folks because they'll have you know they'll have a completely different interpretation to something i remember fighting somebody at uh bucklathon which uh, you were at and you were judging at and they were what's that sorry <laughs> i just said sorry for judging you know <laughs> yeah that's the that's the real reason we're on to the podcast wasn't that fight before is this one um yeah it was uh um no i was i was fighting against uh, i can't remember who it was but they took the hap shield or their version of the hap shield uh from the 133 system and it was just completely different to the way i interpret it and i almost got hit because we were fencing in this tournament and i was looking at what they were doing and i was like that's really interesting actually like why are you doing it like that because you're open here and here and like and and, and they went for a strike and i was like oh shit you know <laughs> like I, got, I need to be maybe less less analytical and just try and hit this person um i think it was uh james wiggins oh yeah. yeah yeah um so it was yeah that was that was an intriguing kind of experience um for me and i get that from sparring with other people like you know like yourself because like you've studied fury and so you might do something ever so slightly to the way i do it and vice versa and so yeah it's one of those things you're where... more consistent furious than i am i'm a bit more of an eclectic furious Fury plus George Silver. Um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned George Silver so openly, considering that like <laughs> if you if you talk to anybody in HEMA, you would have thought that if you say George Silver's name like three times in a mirror, he'll appear and you know <laughs> attack you or whatever. It's a weird thing with Silver, and I think it's it kind of gets overstated, you know, like and there is there is a certain amount of fairly toxic debate in the kind of silver among silver practitioners that you know i'm not involved in and not really interested in although there are certain people involved in it who i respect their you know their opinions more and and their conduct more um but silver's amazing for just the way it was one of the first texts i read and just for the way he talks about time and place and space in in a way that felt when I read it, I was like, oh, I get that. And I recognised that in a way yeah. that I hadn't reading other sources. Um, 
Fury, you know, you're, you're looking at these like hieroglyphics and trying to be like, how did he get into that position? And there's like a few lines of kind of awkward verse that explain what he's doing. And you're like, okay. And, and it takes a while to get your head around. But the idea of the place in silver, that, which is that, you know, that magical moment where you can hit the other person and they can't hit you, you know, and all the, the ways that you can arrive at that place and the things you can do from there. But, but fundamentally the recognition of that moment in space and time um, is just really powerful. And I, I, but I recognized it from fight fighting. I was like, Oh, right. Yeah. I know what that feels like. But then I think because it's got this aura of, and because he's quite definite about it as well. And he says, you know, if you're in the place, like, you can hit him and there is no way he can hit you, you know? And it has this like aura of invulnerability where obviously like the whole fight is a battle to find that moment. It's not like you just do it right and then you can win, Yeah, you know? Um, but I think because it's got that aura of invulnerability and that almost like, and that sense of certainty, people get quite dogmatic about it and quite, you know, weird about it. Um, Whereas to me, I was just like, oh, he's, he's just describing like a fight. You know, I'm not saying there isn't like specific tactics to it and specific arguments he's making about when you're in the place. But, but the, 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 yeah, just that sense of, of place I find, found really useful. Um, and I've started to move more towards using more of his actual technical material more recently because for a long time I just it was a kind of conceptual foundation and an excuse to do all sorts of one-handed crap in longsword that everyone hates um, because he's basically just like yeah just use it in two hands but also sometimes in one hand to mess with their sense of distance and I'm like great I will do that George Silver thank you you've <laughs> all my like weird one-handed technique um, but I've started to use more of his actual techniques recently and found them really useful um, but yeah, I, pe people are weird about silver, I think. Yeah. It's, it's strange because there are certain, like, I feel designated targets in HEMA that you can get away yeah. with, you know, being sometimes like, uh, quite vitriolic about, you know, um, cause there was, there was a thing I've got, uh, a book by John Clements and that's another name okay. that if you mention that name, um it's yeah and i'm like well i mean it's that thing of like a lot of the things that you know now are due to sort of people working with very little material yeah. to, to sort of like come up with so the fact that you have more now is kind of thanks to these people who may you know yeah fine they might have an ego they might have tied the their ego to the techniques that they're doing and refuse to sort of be told that actually you might find that this is more accurate but it, it's that thing of like um you know keith farrell i have a lot of respect for keith farrell and his and like you know his research and stuff but because it's guesswork you know because it is like it, it is like largely guesswork we're trying to fill in the blanks for certain things um you know it's almost like uh, I, I described it recently to a student as imagine if you sort of dug up or like an archaeologist or, or somebody like dug up a deck of cards that people, you know, people used to play with and it was only numbered one to seven. And so you made the logical deduction is, well, they, you know, they only played with cards one to seven and then somebody else digs up another set 
with an eight. And they're like, they played with an eight, you fucking idiot. Like, oh, you don't know anything. <laughs> and, it's, um, and everyone jumps on the bandwagon. Um, yeah, so. It's, it's more like we've dug up like eight to 16 or whatever first, isn't it? And yeah. But we, now that we know what an eight is, if I show maybe we should stop using the, that analogy and, and be more specific, but like there's a massive body of knowledge that has been created by people who've been doing this work for years and years and years that we're all now has almost become assumed. So if somebody says a twerhow or whatever, like if you go back to the text and start reading from scratch and you read that bit, you'll be like, what the fuck is a twerhow? You know, you won't, you won't be able to make sense of it straight away just from being presented with the page. Yeah. Um, and I people, I think sometimes people forget how much implicit kind of history of knowledge has built up that we're leaning on. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. we we taught uh, me and T taught a bit of a joke class at the May Melee, and apologies to anyone who was in that class, but um, we we took a bit of there's a thing called the postmodern gloss that where somebody fed a load of German fencing manuals into a computer and got it to churn up some like mashed up pieces as if they were from a fencing manual but some of them are just really funny and they're like you know like you take his thumb and pull it over his head or i don't know they do they're like plausibly wrestling moves but they just don't make sense yeah or they don't quite make sense at all but there were some that you could pull off that and they sounded plausibly like plays that someone could perform you know yeah. And I, I could look at it and be like, right, I know what that is. That's technique. I can interpret that. And so we presented some of these to a class as, you know, oh, these are from a newly discovered manuscript, you know, and, and this is a lesson on interpretation. And can you interpret these and make sense of them and turn it into a technique? And people are like, yeah, sure, you know, and did things. Um, but it was that thing of like, you can only do that. You've got two lines of text that are basically gibberish generated by a computer. But because yeah. you've got all this like knowledge that's built up over years, you can actually make something of it. Um, and I think it's important that people keep going back to the texts as well and looking at them, um, even though you don't have to anymore. If you're starting human now, you can just watch all the YouTube videos, right? But um, I think part of the fun is getting lost in text and being like, "Oh yeah, but what's it really? Does it actually like? Is is it actually saying that? You know?" Yeah. Um, this has been really awesome, man. Where can people find you online? Or your budding no, uh, club? <laughs> I can't at the moment. I think I'm I'm in the process of setting up a new club in near Colchester in Essex. Um, so if anyone's in that area, um, they can find me on Facebook. I guess um, in the via like the UK Hema group is a good place to post. Um, but and I'm uh, if we've got mutual friends, I'm Jonathan Middleton, um, and you can probably find me. Um, yeah, and kind of watch this space. If you're interested in finding out more about historical European martial arts, visit www.academyofsteel.com. Or if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can send a question to info at academyofsteel.com. Or you can shoot us a message over at Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and TikTok.